with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's Friday, which means we have hot topics with the Friday panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start today's program, it is yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Josh Glock. have a possibility of having explosive growth in our outbreak here in BC if we're not careful in how we progress over the summer. Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer, warning of a looming COVID-19 resurgence in her province. The curve in BC continues to rise after over a hundred new cases were reported on the weekend. And since the upward trend seems to have a lot to do with life getting closer to normal, it got me thinking about something the Prime Minister said back in April. Normality, as it was before, uh, will not come back full on until we get a vaccine for this. And as you say, that uh, could be a very long way off. Well, this week, there's new hope on that front. Oxford University's vaccine showed promising results from human testing. So did a vaccine from Chinese company CanSino, which Canada is also working on. And they're just two possible frontrunners from scores being tested around the globe. Today, I'm joined by one of the creators of CBC's vaccine tracker, Emily Chung. She'll tell us where we are on the path to approving vaccines. This is Frumperger. Hi, Emily. Hi. All right, so we're four months into this pandemic. It really feels to me like a vaccine is our ticket out of this mess. And I have to say, I'm pretty heartened to see just how many scientists are all working on this at the same time around the globe, really racing to come up with a vaccine. And I was especially interested to see that on Monday, one of these efforts by Oxford University and this company called AstraZeneca saw results from human trials. What were those results? Well, what they found in early stage human trials was two things. One, um, that the vaccine didn't seem to cause any major side effects, which is good. It looks like it's pretty safe. Um, and the other thing it found was that it seemed to be provoking an immune response in both antibodies and T-cells, which is what you're looking for in a vaccine. When we look at the immune responses, they are present in everybody. We see good neutralizing antibodies. These are the ones that we're looking for that should inhibit the infection of the virus into cells. So really uh, results at the high end of our, um, of our expectations. And so we're into this, this human trial stage, but how many more phases does a vaccine have to go through before reaching approval? Uh, well, they've got more stages of human trials. All vaccines need to go through a preclinical evaluation, which mm -hmm. is in the lab and tests on animals. And there are 142 vaccine candidates right now that are at that stage around the world. Then they move into phase one, which is early stage human testing. And the real goal there is to make sure the vaccine is safe. So you pick healthy volunteers um, up to about 100 and you give them different doses of the vaccine and you, you're looking for side effects. And then that's where you also can try and look for preliminary signs that it's causing an immune response. But the goal of phase one is really safety. Mm -hmm. um, then you move on to phase two, which is a bigger human trial, and this is where you're more looking for an immune response, and you're also trying to figure out, okay, what's the best dose to give 
Um, do we need one shot, two shots? You know, how far apart should they be? Those those kinds of things. And phases one and two are the phases Oxford just saw some results from. After that is when you move on to phase three, and that's when you answer the really key question, which is, well, is this going to stop someone from getting this disease if they're vaccinated? Usually phase three is done on a much larger scale, like thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, and you're going to go somewhere where you have a very active pandemic to increase the chances that someone will be exposed to the virus. So that's why the companies that are doing phase three trials are doing them in places like Brazil, South Africa, and the U.S. And uh, phase three can last years, although presumably uh, the more severe the pandemic is and the faster it's spreading and more widespread in the population, the, the sooner you can see results. Interesting. So in phase three, they give people the vaccine and then they wait for them to encounter COVID in their daily lives. I mean, that's how you test if the vaccine works. How do they decide in phase three if it's working? Like what threshold do they have to meet in phase three? Well, vaccines don't work in everybody. So they're trying to see that in a certain percentage of the population, it will reduce the chance of them getting an infection or maybe eliminate the chance of them getting an infection, or at the very least, prevent them from getting a severe infection compared to someone who hasn't had the vaccine. And I think the threshold the WHO is looking for in this case is that it works about 50% of the time at least. But of course, everyone is hoping that it'll be much higher than that, you know, um, that'll protect most people who get the shot. And I've seen that there's these conversations, in fact, about intentionally exposing volunteers to the virus to kind of help fast track that process. You could guarantee that your volunteer has been exposed to the virus and whether that vaccine is working. But can you explain why that is controversial? It's controversial, especially for COVID-19, because we don't have any treatment or cure for it. Um, Generally, in the past, people have only done those kinds of studies, which are called challenge studies, for things where we can treat people for it. With COVID-19, I mean, even relatively young, healthy people can potentially see pretty serious effects. But if we do trials like this, they're not going to replace the standard phase one, phase two, phase three, especially since it just wouldn't be feasible to do a, a trial like this with thousands or tens or thousands of people. So the vaccines we've mentioned so far are the ones that are furthest along, but they're not the only ones that are in development. You were part of a team that made a a CBC tracker to follow the many vaccines that are in development right now. Can you tell me just how big is this effort around the globe to come up with a vaccine? It's huge. (laughs) I think pretty much (laughs) anyone who was working on a vaccine for anything has now turned their attention to COVID-19. You know, this includes people who are working on animal vaccines, people who are working on vaccines for anything ranging from like Zika to Ebola to flu. And anyone who has any kind of technology that can be used in vaccines, things like, you know, adjuvants um, that can boost immune response is trying to get involved with this too. So there's obviously the incentive here of, you know, saving the planet from this virus, but I imagine there's also a financial incentive as well. If a company is the first to get a vaccine approved, 
how can they expect to benefit from that? Well, I mean, they definitely have a big market for this. In fact, a lot of governments around the world have already secured deals with certain manufacturers that if their vaccine makes it to market, you know, they're committing to buying a certain amount of doses, and that's in the, you know, millions. You know, the Trump administration has awarded a $1.9 billion contract to Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech for 100 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine with the option to buy 500 million more doses. There probably will be more than one vaccine. I mean, we've got more than 100 vaccines under development right now from all over the world, and they're all using different technologies, and they all have different pros and cons. So some of them might be suitable, more suitable for some populations than others. And, and there's other advantages to that, too, you know, just manufacturing capacity for a particular vaccine. And if there are different kinds of vaccine, they use different raw materials, they use different factories that could generate a much bigger supply around the world than the trickle that we would probably get initially from a single vaccine. You know, you're talking about all these different strategies and, and types of vaccines. I know it's you can't explain all of it, but can you just tell me a little bit about some of those distinctions? What, what are some of the most interesting different types of vaccines in, in the works right now? So, I mean, some of them are relatively traditional. Like, I, I think most of us think of vaccines being either a dead virus or mm -hmm. one that's been weakened. And those ones are some of the strategies that are being used. The second main group are ones that don't involve the entire virus. You don't have to grow the whole virus or anything. What they do is focus on one protein. And generally, that's the spike protein. So, you know, this virus is called the coronavirus because it's got this sort of crown of spikes around us. And that's the spike protein. It's used to bind to cells in order to get inside the cell. And there's a number of ways you can get this spike protein in the body so that your immune cells can learn to recognize it and stop it from infecting cells. So obviously the, the simplest method is to just inject the spike protein itself. And there's a lot of uh, companies that are working on that. There's also a variation on that where you've got the spike protein, but you get into a shape that kind of looks like a virus. And that's actually the technology that Medicago, the Canadian company that's in phase one human trials now, is using. The other way is using what's called a viral vector. And what that is, is a carrier virus. So it's a virus that's not coronavirus. It's a virus that won't harm humans. Oxford and Consino are using versions of a virus called the adenovirus to carry the spike protein into the human body and then make lots of copies of the spike protein inside the body. The third way of getting this spike protein into the body is to just take the gene itself with RNA or DNA, but they're mm -hmm. quite similar. Basically what happens is those are the instructions for making the spike protein, bring those into the body, and then your own cells will take those instructions to make copies of the spike protein. Segment one of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News will have part two in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After Nine. 
You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is segment two of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. It was interesting to see in the news recently that, you know, there were these initial presumptions that if you got the coronavirus that you would develop an immunity. Now there's some research suggesting that that immunity might only last for a few months If that's true, does it suggest a vaccine might only work for a few months as well? It depends on the vaccine. Some of them might generate a longer-lasting immune response than others, but there's a lot of technology involved. And you can actually, depending on the type of platform you use, the type of adjuvants, can sometimes be more specific and tailor your immune response to optimize it. There's the potential for a vaccine to be more effective at inducing an immune response than a natural infection. We talked uh, earlier about how the Oxford vaccine seems to be safe. It seems to cause an immune response. What other criteria makes a vaccine good for this pandemic? Some of these techniques, you can scale them up and manufacture many doses much more quickly than others. And some of them might require multiple doses. Maybe, you know, you can only vaccinate half the number of people with the same number of doses. There's also the distribution, you know, how easy it is to distribute. Some of these vaccines will have to be stored at very cold temperatures. And that might be a problem for distribution in certain parts of the world. So these are, yeah, these are all considerations that might make a difference in the end. What do you think is the earliest we could actually see these vaccines get rolled out for use? There are some people being optimistic, saying as early as the end of this year, but I mean, (laughs) that seems really unlikely. We're still just started phase three testing for even the ones that are the furthest ahead. Normally, these things can take, you know, an average of 10 years for a vaccine to get from the preclinical development to market registration. That's right. And, and obviously, you know, every, everyone's saying to the regulators are all saying, you know, the standard's going to be the same for this one. It's got to be just as safe and effective as any other vaccine that took those 10 years. While they're speeding things up by overlapping some of the phases, they still have to meet all the criteria for those phases. The other thing I've been thinking about is that even once we get past all those phases and, and a vaccine is approved, how many people actually need to be vaccinated to act, you know, for this to be effective, for this to really stop the pandemic? Yeah, it's going to be a lot, like billions and billions of people. Because none of us have been exposed to this before. It's a totally new virus, and so nobody has immunity. Like, even in places where they had very bad waves of this pandemic, you know, when they've looked at the studies to try and test the antibodies of people in population and see what percentage have been infected. It's very, very small. There definitely isn't anywhere close to herd immunity, which for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is thought to be about somewhere between 60 and 70%. You know, vaccines are never 100% effective either. If, if we're in a situation where there's not enough doses for everyone in the world right away. What kind of conversations are happening about who would get the vaccine first? I think in most places, there's two angles to this. One is we need to prioritize globally because obviously this is a pandemic. And so 
you know, which country should be prioritized. And another question is within a country who should be prioritized. You're talking about healthcare workers, you know, frontline healthcare workers, essential workers. And then after that, usually the highest risk groups. On a global scale, it's, it's a little bit trickier. I mean, a lot of countries are saying that they want to vaccinate their own populations first. But on the other hand, the places where the pandemic is the biggest problem are not necessarily those countries and where a vaccine can make the biggest difference. And, and where does Canada fit into that mix? Canada has a number of vaccine candidates. So in theory, we might have some say, but most of those would also not be manufactured here, which means we could also have trouble getting enough for our population. You know, obviously the government is trying to make deals and trying to secure doses for our country and trying to boost manufacturing capacity so this won't all be manufactured overseas. But Canada is also a smaller market, which can also be a bit of a challenge. So obviously these vaccines are incredibly important to public health around the world, but I also wonder about the risks of moving too quickly, that, you know, you have anti-vaccination groups who are already campaigning against vaccines. And I can only imagine that things would get worse if a vaccine was pushed too quickly ahead for approval and there are side effects or they aren't as effective as advertised. Well, everyone is saying, everyone is saying that they will have to meet the same criteria as any other vaccine. When I was talking to um, one researcher in Canada about this, she said the idea that some people might be hesitant to take these new vaccines won't even be an issue for a while because at the beginning, when we first get some vaccines, there really will be a huge shortage. There really will be only a fraction of the doses available compared to the number of people who want and need it. And so anyone who doesn't want it isn't, isn't even probably going to have the opportunity to say no. Right. So we're a long way off from having a, a, a universal mandate for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Well, I will be watching closely as well. Thank you so much for your insights into this. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Some news before I say goodbye. A former CBC employee is going public about his experience of hearing two colleagues use the N-word in a staff discussion at the Fifth Estate last year. At the time, Dexter Brown was working as an associate producer there. The N-word was repeatedly used in a documentary about racial issues in the American South. Two longtime Fifth Estate employees then used the word in a staff discussion after the screening, either quoting people in the item or when discussing its contents. Brown says he was shocked and then disappointed by the resulting investigation. The public broadcaster confirms that a third-party investigator was called in and that corrective actions were taken as a result, but CBC says it cannot comment on the details because of confidentiality agreements. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to FrontBurner. That is yesterday morning's FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around. 
Coming up in a moment, it is our Friday panel with Hot Topics here on 93.1 CFIS-FM's After 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And it is the Friday edition, which means it's time for some hot topics with our uh, Friday panel. And uh, we just came out of uh, uh, front burner from CBC News talking about the possibility of a vaccine, which may show up soon, may show up uh, later. And uh, I've even heard some people say it may show up never. So let's uh, let's start with COVID-19 and uh, the bad news that in uh, northern BC, the northern health region, we had a total of eight new cases yesterday. Let's start with uh, Tracy. Uh, how did we uh, get off the rails, Tracy? You know, I, I think that it's a, a mixed message here in, in that we're, we're isolated enough geographically that we were spared the worst of the actual COVID pandemic. BC in general dealt with it really well. So up here, I think people really developed a false sense of security. And as soon as there was any relaxing, people figured it was time to go back to normal. You know, I, I'm still going into work every day and feeding critters and doing our thing in there as we get ready for the renovations. And I've seen motorhomes from California. Um, I've seen a ton of plates from Alberta. I've seen Washington, Ontario. There's a lot of travel going on, and we're just mixing things up. And then when you get into stores and you get into bars and restaurants, people aren't in masks. They are not social distancing, and now we're seeing, what, 60% of the new cases in Canada are all under 40 years old, and of that, a third of them are winding up in hospital. So it's a big deal, and people just, I don't think, are taking it seriously enough anymore. Uh, Eric, do you, are you surprised at all at uh, a bit of a resurgence? Uh, well, not really. I was, uh, you know... I was a little surprised that it remained as steady as it did for as long as it did. But uh, we don't know. You see, we don't know what's happening out there because they don't tell us where these cases are, uh, what part of the province uh, of the Northern Health area that they're in. And so we don't have any idea whether it was imported or whether it was local or just been here for a while and then broke out again. So. It's kind of hard to figure out what's going on, but I kind of agree with Tracy there. There's people driving through from all over the place, and, and tourists and other people have decided that, you know, this thing looks like it's pretty well finished, so we'll go back to the normal operation. Mm-hmm. Even eight isn't a lot, but it depends whether they're super spreaders or just uh, one-offs. So if they're a super spreader, we could see a big run here. Yeah, I guess it would also depend on if uh, if all the, if all eight came from a cer- a particular event. And uh, Art, I, I think that's one of the things that concerns me is is not knowing where these eight came from. Do you think they're being a little more uh, a little overprotective uh, for uh, individual rights when it comes to that aspect of the whole uh, pandemic? I think they're being totally ridiculous. Uh, this whole time they refused to tell us where the cases were. There's only some occasional stories of, uh, you know, how there was a number of them in Fort St. John that told us that they where some of them were. Um, and not telling us where they are is ridiculous. It doesn't protect anybody's rights. And uh, it, um, it, it 
it doesn't give you a chance to be more careful if they if you know they're in your area. But you know, our our biggest problem here is that we haven't had a, a real bad um, outbreak of it in this area. We are nowhere near the herd immunity, and so that's why we're still so vulnerable. The places that have got hit really hard at first, and you know, it was pretty awful, but they're just not seeing that kind of infection now. So, yeah, we're we got to be careful. We got to continue on. Um, hopefully, uh, they'll. It won't be too bad. We'll, I know the, the virus itself is nowhere near as strong as it used to be, so it should be a lot safer to catch it now than before. Uh, actually, I've heard the opposite of that. But, uh, Herb, uh, when I heard about eight new cases in Prince George, the first thing I started thinking about was where have I been recently and was I in a situation where I may have been exposed? Is, is that a concern that, again, harkens back to not knowing where these new eight, eight cases came from? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, we, we, should, we should be made aware of, of where, where, the, where the cases are and, uh, and how they're being contracted. I think that's kind of basic public knowledge that uh, should, be, um, should be shared. Uh, I, I did hear on the CBC this morning that uh, the majority of the cases were actually part of the Northwestern um, area, um, so uh, and and there was some in the northeast. So Prince George was probably spared. I don't think all additional eight cases or eleven cases uh, have been in the Prince actually in Prince George. So I mean, northern northern health region is immense. It spreads from Fort St. John all the way to Prince Rupert, and uh, and sort of that, that kind of information where um, you know people are people are told in which communities have a problem uh, would be helpful. As would, um, you know, we have to start looking at the mandatory uh, mask requirements, I think. Um, uh, in the States, uh, uh, Trump has, has uh, changed course and is now espousing the use of masks. Um, you know, he was the only, well, I, I hate to call him serious um, opposition to mask wearing, but um, why, why are we not? I mean, it's, they're cheap, 50 cents for a mask. Um Easy to wear. You don't have to wear it outside, I don't think. But if you're going into uh, a retail environment or a, an indoor environment where social distancing isn't possible, it's uh, it's cheap and and uh, however effective it is, it's better than nothing. Okay, let's talk a little bit about mandatory masks, Tracy. Uh, we also have mentioned in this discussion how low our numbers in Northern BC have been all along. Are we really at the stage where we need mandatory masks indoors in Prince George? Absolutely, yes. I think that part of what worries me is this idea that we're, we care where the cases are and where they've come from as if that provides us with some level of protection. If we know that the cases are in the Northwest, they're not in Prince George, then people don't worry about it. And that's exactly how we wind up in trouble because all it takes is one super spreader you head down to Costco to do your shop and say, no, thanks, I don't want the mask when they offer you one at the front door. And it turns out that the person you're following in is also not wearing a mask and they're a super spreader and suddenly we have an issue here in Prince George. It doesn't matter whether we have cases in Prince George or we don't have cases in Prince George. We are all at risk. People are traveling, they're moving around, and that is how the virus is transmitted. Masks protect us by making them mandatory 
it takes the onus off of, A, the individuals to make a choice when science has been so heavily politicized that people think they're making a political statement by wearing or not wearing a mask. If it's mandatory, that's eliminated. It also eliminates the need for retail staff to be dealing with irate customers who don't want to wear a mask or a customer who's upset that another customer isn't wearing a mask. If it's mandatory, it's a rule. We follow the rules. It's easy to enforce. Okay, Eric, have we seen much of that, uh, uh, those altercations when it comes to masks uh, in our area? Uh, no, I haven't seen too much of it, but, uh, you know, it's still kind of up in the air. Like, I mean, we don't even know if uh, the eight cases or something, as an example, were spread because people were wearing masks. It's more likely that they were picked up in the workplace or, you know, that's where a lot of this happens, like uh, when people are working close together and uh, and one person comes to work and he's got it, and next thing you know, eight people have it, and uh, absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the people wearing masks. Uh, so I think if they kind of leave it, I mean, for me, if they, I mean, I, I haven't worn a mask yet, although I could take one with me. But if I get into a situation where I think I should better put my mask on, then I'll put it on. But also, if I go to a store and the only way they're going to serve me is by mandatory mask, well, I'll probably go to a different store. It's not that important that I'm, you know. So I don't like the mand- mandatory part of it. Uh, I kind of like the optional, but then some people, they get carried away. Like yesterday, I had two different individuals patting me on the shoulder, uh, you know, in kind of a friendly way, and I kind of looked at him. I said, well, thanks for transferring your uh, COVID over to me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you know, people, they're back to normal, so they figured they do everything. So I look yeah. at somebody and say, hey, would you like a nice COVID hug? They kind of look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things you have to work through, but there's no... I haven't seen any definitive proof that this thing is being spread uh, anymore by people with masks than by people without it. Okay, uh, here's uh, something we got uh, via email a few uh, days ago. This comes from the Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety, and it actually outlines the difference of the uh, the uh, when and where people should wear masks and what type of masks are out there. And the, the basic homemade math, uh, mask, they say, should be used uh, when in general public, where uh, consistent physical distancing is not possible, such as stores, shopping areas, and on public transit. So uh, it doesn't say indoors, period. It's, it's really more about uh, the volume of people out there. Uh, Art, do you think it should still be up to the individual as far as uh, British Columbia goes? Uh, I think it should. I don't think it should be mandatory. Um, and I, I don't think that the information or the uh, evidence is all in on the effectiveness of the mask. You know, earlier on in, in the uh, uh, pandemic, all the experts were telling us that uh, masks were unnecessary, that they uh, even sometimes would make the situation worse. And, you know, I see it all the time, the people who are wearing masks, they have them under their nose or under their chin, and then when they get somewhere, they pull them up, and then they pull them down again. Every time you touch yourself on your face, you know, you scratch your nose, whatever you do, 
you're getting, if you have the virus, you'll be getting it all over your hands, and then you'll be spreading it to everything you touch. And uh, the fact is, uh, most of these masks, even the medical ones, they're designed to keep out bacteria. Viruses are much smaller. They can still get through. Um, it's, you will stop some uh, minuscule droplets from going anywhere. That'll help somewhat. But basically, I don't. It's not like in a medical situation where a doctor is performing an operation and uh, you know that mask never gets touched. If his nose is itchy, he gets a nurse to scratch it with an instrument, which then goes into the used tray. Um, they're, they're much more careful. The average people, they're not doing that right, you know, and uh, it, I kind of doubt it really makes all that much difference. Well, uh, everything I've seen uh, has indicated that masks are effective. Um, I, I still believe in uh, Bonnie Henry when it comes to advice, and she's saying that you should maybe wear a mask when you're in a crowded situation, but uh, still she has not gotten to the point where she feels it's mandatory. So I'm going to leave it at that. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the um, forest industry uh, in a moment here on After 9. It's After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Of course, the big failing in the COVID pandemic is our uh, our panel is not in studio live, so we, we don't get to hear the uh, during the breaks discussions that would go on and i i don't doubt there would have been uh, a bit of that after our last little segment but uh, we'll move on right now to a topic that uh, herb sent our way and uh, herb wanted to talk a little bit about the forestry policy reform uh, kofi again claims stumpage is too high in bc so herb let's start the ball rolling and uh, fill us in on a, a few of the details there well it- if you start looking at uh, the headlines, Cantor's making money again, and that's supposed to be good news for this area, but it's not. They're, they've, they've shut basically all their, a lot of their mills, local mills down around here. And um, uh, where, where are these good times for the Prince George region? We should be benefiting, and we're not. I mean, Cantor has, you know, over the last 10 years, spent billions and billions of dollars that they made primarily in B.C., Overseas, both in Sweden and the southern United States, and bought mills there, uh, which are, are starting to make money now because prices are high, probably because they've shut down a lot of BC production. So, uh, you know, this this is um, it, it's it's a crazy situation that uh, uh, you know we're, we've basically been taken to the cleaners and uh, hung out to dry. Okay, uh, Art, your take on on the uh, situation currently? Yeah, I haven't read up on that, uh, but uh, yeah, they've they've shut down a lot of mills. I think uh, I think there's only like six sawmills left in this area, and uh, something like that anyway. And uh, you know, maybe Canfor is making money again because they shut down money losing mills. Uh, I cannot see any corporation shutting down a money-making operation. You know, that, that's what they're in business for, is to make money. It's, it's profitable. I can't see them shutting it down. That's not how you stay in business. So, yeah, they've invested elsewhere, and that might be because uh, maybe uh, the business climate is still a whole lot friendlier in other jurisdictions. So, yeah, as, you know, that's their objective is to make money. They'll go where the money can be made. 
Okay, Eric, uh, is this uh, just another of the death knells we've heard over the years uh, for the forest industry, or uh, is this a, a little more serious? Well, uh, you know, and over the long haul, it's very serious. I mean, uh, 70 some odd mills shut down in the last uh, 20, 25 mills. The old mill in Watson Island's gone, the old mill in Hindemith's gone, Paper Mill in Mackenzie's gone. Those are big operations, and a lot of the logs, like the ones that used to go to Watson Island, those logs, as far as I know, are going to, for export to China now or something, and the whole West Coast is exporting forest products, and we're, we're crying we got a shortage of uh, fiber for some of these mills. <coughs> it's not a good thing. Uh, Canfor is now, it's not just Canfor, it's West Razor and a few others that are buying mills in the U.S., so... It's probably 20 or 30 mills if you throw in the Swedish bunch in the last 10 or 15 years that they've been investing in. So we have a serious problem. And just giving them a deal on stumpage so they can make more profits in the short term I don't think is a solution. I think they have to go back and have a look at how we, we actually run the lumber industry in British Columbia and, and uh, they're looking at ways to fix it. Horgan made a comment the other day about we're not getting the jobs uh, for the trees, especially not if you're going to be uh, not paying you know a fairly fair price for stumpage, and it also has some impact on our softwood lumber agreement. So, and that was the initial idea was that you know the government supply because and he made the point and I think it's important we all remember this that the trees belong to the people of British Columbia. They don't belong to the forest companies. And they turn around and they get them through the stumpage situation and, and TFLs. But there are trees. And the agreement when they first started this idea with bills and everything in the interior was you get the trees, we get the jobs. And I don't think you have to be a genius to figure out that the jobs are going pretty fast and the trees are going along with them. <laughs> And we're not going to have anything left if we keep going this way. Okay, Tracy, is this the beginning of the end of the forest industry in our area? Well, if we look here right now... Uh, Tracy. Oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Eric can go ahead. I'm good with that. Okay, Eric. I was just going to say, if we look now, and, and I mentioned it, six mills in the area. Now, we're talking Dunkley, and we're talking uh, uh, Bear Lake. When we're talking about this area, because then there's only Prince George Sawmill, Carrier, and uh, Lakeland. Like, we got hardly anything left compared to what we used to have. You know, we had a plywood plant here, North Central Plywood, and we had Rustas, we had Netherlands Overseas Mills. We had all kinds of sawmills and jobs and everything. Now, if you take six times, say, you know, it'd be, say, 400 people to a mill, which is kind of high, that's 2,400 jobs. That's not much. No, exactly. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss a topic that wasn't submitted by the panel, uh, but one that's been on my mind for a while. We're going to talk about uh, taking offense to this, that, and the next thing when we return after 9. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And it's the Friday edition with Hot Topics. Our panel is on the line, and uh, we're going to move into something that uh, has been uh, 
front of my mind for a while, and that is uh, uh, cancel culture that is out there. And i got to start with a quote from comedian Ricky Gervais, who uh, has said many times, just because you're offended, it doesn't mean you're right. Uh, Tracy, your thoughts on what seems to be a very prominent thing in our society right now, where if uh, someone's offended, you have to change what you're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I really buy that. I think this notion of being offended is something that, again, has really grown legs under the social media world that we're all living in. And people read a headline or they read a single comment, or you're doing things in text without all of the body language and all of the nuance that goes with it. And so it spread this divisiveness that, similar to what I was saying, that science has been politicized, so wearing a mask is a political statement, and so is not wearing one. It's kind of the same deal. Um I mean, I, I'm speaking from a position of privilege as a white woman. I haven't been subjected to a lot of the kinds of offensive things that we have seen people objecting to. And, you know, I think it's important that people recognize that their words can offend and that their words do have power. But I don't buy this reverse argument that everything is politically correct and it has completely whitewashed language. I, I don't buy that in the least. And so I think that there's danger in giving power and, and airtime to the notion that everyone's just a snowflake these days. I mean, of the bunch of us, I've probably been called more than my fair share of things over the last several years, but I don't find it offensive. I look at those opportunities uh, as a way to try and engage with someone and try and get through some of those barriers. So it's definitely out there. You're right. It's happening. People are just knee-jerk reacting, but I, I do think that it's, it's harmful rather than helpful. Okay, Tracy, uh, you, you make a good point uh, in that if someone is insulting you or saying something that perhaps you find offensive, uh, by taking offense, that gives the other person's words a little more power. Herb, do you believe uh, that's sort of where we've gotten to, is that uh, your uh, people are, are taking everything that's said a little bit too literally? I, I think this is a really interesting time. Uh, in our history, that we're, uh, we're re-examining a lot of things in society that maybe we haven't before. So a lot of things are coming up. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, problems with relationships to the Native community, uh, the Black community. And I think, you know, a lot of people uh, really probably weren't aware of, of those, of, that, of, of all the problems that, that, that are there. And people are expressing them. And it's uncomfortable for the majority to hear that. Um, uh, no, no one wants to hear that uh, our society isn't as good as we once thought. So we come up with stuff like, you know, in, in relation, not all of us, but I mean, in relation to Black Lives Matter, there's uh, people say, well, White Lives Matter too, but that, that's not the point. Um, you know, we, we've got to we've got to recognize the problems that, that are out there. And, and address it. So cancel culture, again, is sort of like a, uh, a catch-all phrase where we're, we're, we're saying that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, complaints for nothing. But, it, but it's, there, there are complaints, and they're, they're always based on some reason. And I think we've got to slow down and, and really listen carefully to people who are, who are talking about, um, who are complaining, right? And, 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 Decide on a on a case by case um, 
basically, if if it's if it's valued or if it's valid or if it has uh, something that we can learn, I think we have to uh, just really do a lot of listening right now. I think that's that's the important thing. Ah, listening. There's the key, uh, Art. Uh, one thing that's been uh, part of the whole uh, pandemic, if you will, of uh, the cancel culture is the defacing of statues. And many of them are individuals who 200 years ago, well, the statue was erected because we felt these individuals were uh, heroes of the time. Have we gotten to a point where now we're looking at historical figures uh, and judging them based on uh, current values as opposed to the values of the time. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, we are, and uh, you know, I can I can understand a certain amount of that. You know, you don't want to glorify somebody who um, pushed racism or slavery or anything like that. Uh, but some of these people, you know, they're tearing down statues. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was defaced for Pete's sake. Uh, you, Ulysses S. Grant, who led the armies that defeated the Confederacy, his statue was torn down. And uh, you begin to wonder if it's really about racism or if it's maybe just an attempt to destroy the culture, the history of the country in order to bring about a revolution. And, you know, we're tearing down monuments and memorials to men who did bad or racist things, and... We're requiring sports teams to change their names because, you know, it might be a racist. What about institutions like the Democratic Party in the United States, which had a public opinion that supported slavery, it supported the Confederacy, it fought against citizenship for freed slaves, it fought against the vote for the black, fought for decades against civil rights for non-whites, so shouldn't they be required to change their name too if we're canceling uh, culture against everything that did things bad in the past? That's kind of a, an interesting point. Uh, Eric, uh, at what point do we disregard history and uh, just move forward? Well, I don't think you can really disregard it, but I think we have to get more in tune with, with what the real history is as opposed to how it's been written, especially like in the United States or something. Like Most of their history is painted in favor of the great American dream and, and make America great again, so... It's not really, a lot of these things aren't really what they propose them to be. It doesn't matter whether it's the Second World War or whether it's Vietnam or whether it's Iraq or whether it's Iran. You, If you start really digging down, you find a, it's not a pretty picture. And of course, we're, we go along with most of this or we don't say nothing. I mean, a, a country's in fairly serious condition. When we had Iraq and we had shock and awe and people sat on their couches and... Uh, and uh, watched it on TV, and nobody seemed to think that that was a bad thing. And they basically bombed the hell out of that city and killed women and children. And everybody had the idea that's okay because we're good and Iraqis are bad. Yeah, good point. Uh, This actually, uh, of course, isn't a new issue. In fact, I'm going to quote the late, great... uh, Oh, man, I've forgotten his name now. The comedian um, that had the... uh, Seven words you can't hear say on on radio. George Carlin. George Carlin. Okay, George Carlin. Uh, uh, he he had said in the past, political correctness is America's newest form of intolerance. It is especially pernicious, uh, pernicious because it comes disguised as tolerance. 
He also said political correctness is uh, fascism pretending to be manners. Uh, quick take on that, uh, Herb. Yeah, I mean, in, in every instance, uh, you know, of, of opinion, there's you, you've, you've got to use judgment. Um, so when we're talking about uh, serious things like slavery or uh, human rights abuses, um, you know, that has to be taken into account. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a fine line, and, and uh, we, just have, we owe it to our fellow citizens to do the very best we can and not to diminish uh, their, their history or, or, um, uh, or point their, of view. their feelings. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Art, very shortly. I agree with George Carlin 100%. He's bang on. Okay. Uh, Eric, your take? Yeah, that was pretty interesting what Carlin had to say. And I think you can make a case for that without too much trouble because it is, uh, you know, people have an idea and then they, they force you to sort of change and go along with it rather than debate whether it's a good idea or a bad idea or whether they're right or they're wrong. And we need more open public debates on these issues as opposed to... Uh, one-liners, and, and then they disappear, but then they come back, and then they disappear. Okay, quick final word, Tracy. Lifelong learning is a thing. Cradle to the grave is important to continually evolve, and evolution is what is shaping our society. And so, yes, attitudes change, and history is rewritten by the victors, so they say. Uh, in this instance, I agree that we need to have more public conversation, and it needs to be conversation, not headlines and tweets. Excellent. And thank you all for being a part of our conversation today. Uh, of course, the panel will be back again next Friday, and uh, I believe Bill will be back in the host chair.